Well, good morning on this beautiful Tuesday in the 15th week. We gather this week with uh, a study that will take place in Isaiah and Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew's 11th and 12th chapter this week. This follows as we've enjoyed together the past several weeks. We've worked through chapters uh, 7, 8, and 9, and 10 last week. And now we're in chapter 11. In chapter 11, our Lord is very directive in his teaching. And he's very specific in his teaching about several points. To better understand those points, we look again to our Old Testament, our reading from Isaiah. This prophecy from Isaiah takes place during what's known as the Syro-Ephraimite War. That took place from 735 to 732 BC. And Syria and Israel, remember now we're in a divided kingdom, Judah in the south, Israel in the north. Israel's also known as Ephraim. That's how you hear it referred to today, Ephraim. And Syria, Aram, and Ephraim, Israel, have united in a war against Judah. And we hear read from the telling that they've gone up against Jerusalem, Judah, and have attacked it, but they hadn't prevailed. Then the Lord says to Isaiah, we heard read, go out to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Sheer Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field and say to him, take care you remain calm and do not fear. Do not let your courage fail before these two stumps of smoldering brands. And he goes on to name the leadership of both Ephraim and Syria. Then he makes a prediction, prophecy. He says within 65 years, these two brigands will fail. These two warring nations who've united themselves against Judah will come to naught. And isn't that true, that the Assyrian Empire arises within 30 years, not 65 years, within 30 years, and both Damascus and Ramalia, rather, Damascus and, and, and Samaria are overthrown. Both of them are overthrown. Israel, Ephraim, and Aram, Syria, are overthrown by the Assyrian armies moving south. And that is true. Within 65 years this shall happen, and unless it happens. And he tells them, he tells Isaiah to tell the king, unless your faith is firm, you shall not be firm. In Matthew's gospel, we're in the 11th chapter. We recall from last week in our study together that in the 10th chapter is the commissioning of the 12 to go out. And he tells them that you will not be welcome. He tells them you may come to some places that won't listen to you, that won't hear you. You are to leave them and shake the dust from your feet. Take very few provisions. Look to the kindness of those you minister to. But those that refuse you, do not be dismayed. Move on. Shake the dust from your feet. Most of the miracle stories that we've read about in chapters 8 and 9, these nine miracle occurrences, they happened in the cities named today, Chorazim, and Bethsaida, this is where these happen, Capernaum, this is where these miracles happen, the majority of them, not all, but the majority happened there. And so our Lord is very descriptive in telling them that he reproaches these towns. Most of his mighty deeds had been done there, but they had not repented. Woe to you, he says, very strong language for our Lord, woe to you, for if these mighty deeds had been done in your midst, that had been done in your midst, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. He then quotes from the prophet Joel. Our Lord quotes from the prophet Joel. And in prophet Joel, 
we're told very, that very day that, the, that the, you will come to demise Tyre and Sidon on the day of the Lord, Yom Yahweh, the day of the Lord will come. Tyre and Sidon had been worship centers to the pagan god Baal, and that's what Joel is speaking to. He's speaking in the 6th century B.C., but Tyr and Sidon were known for centers of worship to Baal. And so Joel is prophesying that they will fall if they maintain this allegiance to this pagan, non-existent God. Christ is quoting Joel in telling the people of Capernaum, the people of Chorazin, and the people of Bethsaida that you, your lot, will be worse than that of Tyr and Sidon because the miracles have been performed for you there. Christ himself has walked among you. You've seen people raised. You've seen people healed. You've seen people free to the oppression of demoniac investiture. That's happened, and yet you still do not repent. So from today, we can take a couple of lessons that we apply perhaps to ourselves. Number one, sometimes it's possible for us to look 20 centuries in historic perspective and say, well, gosh, if the world today had Christ walking among it, it would be a lot more believable, wouldn't it? We could say, well, how could those people not have believed because Christ walked among them, yet we're 20 centuries removed from that, so it's a little bit easier for us to dismiss God. A counter-argument to that is we've had 20 centuries of the proof of Christ on this earth. We've had 20 centuries of the church continuing to grow and expand. We've had 20 centuries of miracles and apparitions occurring throughout time. So we actually have less of an excuse now than those of Chorazin and Bethsaida. We've had 20 centuries of proof that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's what we have. They hadn't seen the resurrection yet. We have. They didn't know about the resurrection yet. We do. So we today have this great privilege of bringing that gospel truth into the world. We celebrate today the life of Katerina Tekakwitha, Katerina or Catherine, born in 1656 to a Mohican father and Algonquin mother near, uh, in upstate New York, rather. She was very aware of the work of Jesuit missionaries. In fact, two Jesuit missionaries, Isaac Jorges and Jean de la Lande, who had been killed nine years before she was born. What's fascinating about those two, we celebrate their uh, feast day later this year, but what's, fa what's fascinating about these two great Jesuit sa saints, these two great Jesuit missionaries, is they had been captured by the Mohawks, tortured, released, and went back. They went back to continue their work. So young Katerina comes to know this. She knows their story because it happened very near where she grew up. She, her parents die when she's four, but she, the work of the Jesuits had continued. Even though the, the, the two predecessors had died, the church had been established. Christ had come into the life of these beautiful Aboriginal people. And so Katerina, perhaps set aside by our Lord, as all of us are with a purposeful existence, as all of us are, then comes to have this desire to know him. And at the age of 23, she's consecrated a virgin within the church. And her contemplative life is inspiring to those around her. Many ridicule her because she prays to an invisible God. Many mock her because of her life. The fact that she's 23 and is not married for 
most Mohican and Aboriginal women, that would have been a death sentence. There would have been no one to care for them. Yet she lives a very simple life, prayerful life, and she inspires people with her consistency in the faith. She dies at the young age of 24, and she's canonized by Pope Benedict XVI in the year 2012, known as the Lily of the Mohawks. What a beautiful title, the Lily of the Mohawks, Katerina Tekakwitha was the first First Nation person canonized by our church. And we looked to her with inspiration because she believed the miracles of Christ. She believed the story the Jesuit missionaries had brought to her people. She believed without seeing. There were no miracles that she observed in her lifetime outside of the missionary work of those generous saints that had come to the First Nation people. That's what she saw, and yet she believed, as we do today. So as we go forward into this beautiful Tuesday, let's be inspired by the first saints of our church. Let's be inspired by saints like Katerina Tekakwitha, who have nothing more than the gospel to inspire them. And we should not live in cities like Corazin or Bethsaida without believing that the story of Christ is true and the desperate need to bring that message for a world that, that needs it so desperately. St. Katerina Tekakwitha, pray for us.